Welcome to About Empathy, a podcast that focuses on patient and healthcare providers' experiences. Thanks for joining us for the second season of About Empathy. This season, we have engaging conversations with patients and informative discussions with healthcare providers. Each week, we will dive into a topic that we hope inspires you to have empathic interactions. I'm Dr. Giovanna Siriani, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Dr. Dori Sekracha, and I'm Dr. Irene Yang. We're physicians working in palliative care and psychosocial oncology at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto. Our clinical experiences have taught us that there's invaluable wisdom in the stories of the people we care for and work with. This podcast gives voice to both the patient and healthcare provider experience, while also reflecting on how we can learn from these stories to inform our practice. Today, we're going to be getting personal on the podcast. We wanted to explore the intersection of how our personal experiences influence our perspective as physicians. And we also wanted to talk about the flip side of that. How does our care of patients impact our own personal lives? When I think about what's happened in my personal life and how it's influenced my profession, I always first think about my youngest son who's autistic. And I think there was something about having to learn how to communicate in a different way, like, you know, having one neurotypical child and then having a neuroatypical child. It was so different. And what it took to try and understand how to communicate with my youngest child, it was frightening. It was endearing. It was some of the hardest things I ever had to do, some of the best things I ever had to do. And that did influence me when I came to work because I think the work we do is all about communication as well. It definitely made me a little more, I think, humble. And I think when I was younger, thought that if I could just do things a certain way, that would always work out. I think I learned that in being a mother, I had to change how I had to be a mother. Therefore, there isn't just one way. And certainly there isn't one way to talk to patients or one way to be a doctor. It just made me more humble, take a deep breath, relax a bit at work and realize that yes, this is hard work, but in the end, it's all worth it. Dory, is there anything about your experience that sort of made you think that the healthcare system wasn't working well when you were trying to figure out how to best support your son? What I think about when I look back now, I just realize, and my husband and I will talk about this, how lucky we were that we had the resources to get what was needed to help our son. Mm -hmm. He's amazing. And he's done better than any of the physicians ever told us he would do. He has finished college, fourth degree black belt in Taekwondo. He does volunteer work. He's looking for a job now that he's just finished college. But I really believe in my heart of hearts that had we not had the ability to help as much as we did in getting the right resources that this could have looked very different. I just shudder when they take away resources from Mm -hmm. these children because Mm -hmm. the potential is so high, but it is a different approach and you have to have the right people doing the right things to help children who are neuroatypical reach their potential. 
And it's hard. It's hard on families when they don't have that. Mm-hmm. And we know from research that it causes a lot of distress in families. And of course, that's not good for anyone in the family, especially for the person who's already struggling with communication. So it just breaks my heart today at the cuts that have come to all education, but especially to children with higher needs. Mm-hmm. I think oftentimes when we're going through medical school and in Canada, we think about the fact that we're so lucky to have this universal healthcare system, that anyone who needs healthcare, that they're going to get it. But I also see the other side of it, because as you guys know, my husband is a child and adolescent psychiatrist. So he sees patients with autism diagnoses and he gets so demoralized because a lot of his patients can't afford the extra help and education and services. And so they're on wait lists for years to try to get the publicly funded ones. And he just feels like he goes to work and he's not making a difference because he can't help them access these services, which is really what they need to live a full life. So that's been sort of the physician perspective that is very challenging as well. Yeah, and when you get the resources, the amazing things that these children can do, it's quite mind-boggling, you know, and I don't even think we understand it yet. I, I don't think people were being nasty to us when they told us, please don't expect this from your child. He probably never will have friends or like they were oh, wow. trying to paint a picture of what they thought I should expect. And and they're probably trying to help you. They're because... probably trying to help. But you know, when you go ahead and you get every resource you can, and you're lucky enough that you can do that, and then you see that that was completely wrong. This is a child who has friends who goes out for dinner and to the show with his friends on his own, did very well in college, who is the first person in his school to get his fourth degree black belt, those kinds of things. You just say, thank God I didn't listen. Or thank God I I was flexible enough to say, well, nothing's written in stone. Let's take it a day at a time. And that's something I think I do bring to work with me. That idea, we tell patients all the time, you know, let's live in the moment, take a day at a time. I actually really believe that. My son taught me that, you know, they give you gifts. What about you, Giovanna? What have you sort of experienced in your personal life that has impacted your perspective as a physician? So I'm going through an experience now with my dad who has been chronically ill for a while and has been in and out of hospital, but was recently diagnosed with an incurable type of cancer and struggling with how to talk to him about that. So on the one hand, seeing the privilege and advantages that I have in terms of understanding the language of medicine and what to expect. But then on the other hand, really having a hard time talking to him about the future and what to expect. And that's been really challenging for me because in my work in palliative care, I feel like I'm talking to people all the time Mm -hmm. about the future and what their wishes are and what they are hoping for and what their values are. But right now, what I'm struggling with most is talking to him about his wishes for his code status. And that's something I encourage families and patients to do every day in my work. But I find in my personal life that there's a barrier there for me. I'm having trouble reconciling the professional half of my brain with the personal half of my brain. I feel actually like I need help. And I feel like 
I'm looking to his healthcare team to see if anyone can help me. And as of yet, no one's really stepped up. But then again, I haven't really asked, Mm -hmm. you know, and is that my own fear of bringing up the topic with him? Can I ask, like, what is it about having this discussion with him that is Mm -hmm. scariest to you? I don't know if that's the right word to use. I just feel like I'm out on a limb. I'd be there by myself amongst my family and amongst his healthcare providers that I would be the only one who would be bringing up something that he might perceive as big and scary. Mm. So I'm feeling a little bit isolated and I'm feeling like not a good daughter because I'm not bringing it up and not a good doctor because I'm not, I'm not walking the walk that I walk in my daily practice, in my professional practice. So I'm struggling with that. And I think that's such a normal struggle because when it's your family, you aren't the doctor. Mm -hmm. And I know exactly what you mean because when my dad was dying, you feel like people are looking to you. And I think sometimes other doctors don't talk to you because they say, well, she knows she does palliative care. I don't have to say that to her. And then they said, you probably don't need this, but we're going to get the palliative care doctor to come and see you anyway. Mm -hmm. And they were magical. It was so wonderful for me. And it's not like she told me anything in my brain, because my brain knew what she said, but she spoke to my heart. And I think that's where we do all worry about the same things. And I think that made me a better palliative Mm -hmm. care doctor too. When I say to a patient, I know this is hard to talk about. I do know that. I knew it before, but I was better, I think, at understanding it at that personal level. And you cannot do that until you experience it. There are things that only experience bring that extra level. Mm -hmm. And so when you're younger, Mm -hmm. you simply can't know that, Mm -hmm. nor should you. It's not a bad thing. It's simply part of being human, right? Mm -hmm. We bring more to the table the more we learn and live, I think. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. I think I'm understanding it differently now because of my personal experience. I think you can still be empathic and trying to understand what other people are going through. But when you're going through it yourself and saying, I'm having a really hard hard. time talking to him about this. I think I understand it more deeply than I did before. And someone should be there for you because you're his daughter. You're Mm. not his palliative care doctor. Mm. I think that's really important. I know I do this. Once you have a patient and you know that their spouse or their child is a doctor, you start to make assumptions. Well, they probably talked about that Mm -hmm. or they understand it versus I know that you're a physician, but I'm just going to talk to you as though you're not just in case Mm -hmm. there are things because I remember that being helpful Mm -hmm. to me. And if I'm saying things that you don't really feel you need, just stop Mm -hmm. me. It's quite rare that someone stops you. So I don't know if that helps you because yeah. what you're feeling makes sense. And it's hard, Joanna. I think it's really hard. I'm holding two different things. I think yeah. I'm holding my head and my heart. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's my head and my heart. My head knows yeah. one thing. My heart is having trouble. And so I think I'm you know, yeah. more understanding of patient experiences in light of what's happening with my dad. I mean, I know this is all still pretty fresh, but have you already noticed that when you are interacting with patients and families that it's changed the dynamic of how you approach the discussion or how you feel about the discussion? It's all fairly new. Yeah. It's all fairly new. So I don't think I've had really a chance to process it, Mm -hmm. but I don't see how it wouldn't change my practice. I think what you said, that thing about your head, your heart, your head, your heart, 
When I'm in my office with patients, I find that that's what we're often helping them navigate and balance what they know in their head and what they feel in their heart and helping them to live with both realities. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes they can be so similar and sometimes they're so different. What you're saying makes so much sense to me on how I felt and what I hear people say to me of trying to balance juggling those balls of what we logically know and what we feel deep. And when it's your parent, boy, you cannot be their doctor. That's another lesson for me. I mean, I think we see all the time, like as human beings, where we don't always think rationally when emotions come into play, right? That's just how we are. I remember when my grandmother was sick and was hospitalized and I was the only family member in the city. I went to the hospital, I was in the family meetings. They were asking where she should go for rehab. And I had a difficult time trying to decide, you know, should she go to the rehab place where I know that there's going to be more Chinese people so she can communicate with them? Should she go to the one that's closer to me so I can see her more often? Should she go to the, the one with the best reputation? And that wasn't even like high stakes, right? So when we think about making higher stakes decisions, like which palliative care unit to go to or things like code status discussions, right? Like that's taking things to an even higher emotional level and I was struggling with the decision about rehab I think that experience even though she was doing okay for a while and wasn't really sick at that time made me totally change my perspective on when I ask families to make decisions and they are having a hard time I think I used to get more frustrated and after that experience my frustrations kind of dissipated because I'm like I know this is hard tell me how I can help you it really helped to actually improve my relationship which is why I was asking you that question, Giovanna, because this was after a period of reflection, right? Mm. And this is all still really new for you. But I found ultimately it helped to enhance my relationship with my patients afterwards. That makes sense, how you bring that back, right? Mm-hmm. So much of, I think, what we do in the healthcare system is about decision-making and let's make that decision and let's make it now Mm -hmm. and this expectation of timing okay this needs to happen and then that needs to happen next yes and that time pressure around what those decisions look like I feel like in palliative care around having a bit of a different perspective kind of giving people the space and the time to make those decisions and to have those discussions and for that to unfold over time I think is a unique part of palliative care. And I think probably one of the best parts of palliative care, because I think a lot of the pressure in acute care is, okay, make this decision next, next, next. I'm understanding in a more personal way how Mm -hmm. tough that can be. Yes, And you can't force people to move towards that if they're not ready for it. I think one of the biggest pet peeves as palliative care physicians is when we kind of approach, we meaning like sort of clinicians, approach families and patients with like this checklist of decisions to make, right? Like, do you want Mm -hmm. this or not? Do you want this or not? And, you know, what we really encourage the trainees who come through our program to do is to step back from that approach and focus more on the patient. You know, do you understand what's going on? What's important to you? What gives you quality of life? Is it the fact that you get to go and work in your garden every day? If you were in a situation where you couldn't do that anymore, like how would you feel? And then from that, try to figure out what medical decisions are going to best support that life that they are painting for you. I think that's a softer way and a more approachable way that patients really Mm -hmm. appreciate. We are going to take a short break. You're listening to About Empathy. About Empathy is recorded at Wellspring, 
Wellspring Cancer Support Foundation is a network of community-based support centers offering professionally-led programs and services to help people living with cancer and those who care for them. No referrals necessary, and Wellspring programs are offered free of charge. Visit wellspring.ca. About Empathy is made possible through an education, research, and scholarship grant from Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center and a medical humanities grant that is jointly funded by postgraduate medical education at University of Toronto, as well as the Department of Family and Community Medicine at Sunnybrook. Welcome back to About Empathy. Irene, I wanted to ask you if you had to say to your younger self or your younger self as a medical student or a resident, yeah, what yeah. would you say to your, <laughs> to the younger <laughs> version of you, someone earlier in their practice, yeah. now that you're later in your practice? Well, I teach the medical students every year their how to break bad news lecture. And what I really try to impart is it's okay to say, I don't know. And in fact, probably I say I don't know a lot more now Mm -hmm. than I did when I was a fourth year medical student or first year resident. When I felt like I needed to prove that I knew what I was doing, then I soon realized that there's so much in medicine and there's so much in life that I had not experienced yet. And patients actually really appreciate it when you say, I don't know, but I'll try to find out for you because they see first that you are a human being, Mm -hmm. that you're not going to just say an answer just because, Mm -hmm. you know, they're expecting you to give them an answer. And if someone had said that to me earlier on, it would have been so helpful just for my general like mindset. Because I think in medicine, there's this expectation, right, that you're going in, that you're very confident. Oh, you're the doctor and you know all the answers, but nothing could be further from the truth. There's so much we don't know. I like that. (laughs) I like that. I think I would tell my younger self that this thing you're feeling about being an imposter is real. And I should have probably talked to my friends about that earlier because they would have all said, yeah, I know what you mean. You have this sense that you have to be a certain way that you should know everything. This kind of goes back to what you said, Irene, Mm -hmm. which you said very well, that I would tell my younger self to take a deep breath and try to relax. Every day can't be perfect. And you're going to learn as you go. And there's nothing wrong with that. And it's okay if you're better in 10 years than you are now. That's actually how it's supposed to be. And not to be afraid of that. I think I would tell my younger self to give people space and time to process the news mm-hmm. you've given them. Mm-hmm. That's, good. That's a good one. It speaks to what you were saying, Dori, about being told that you have to get a no CPR or a DNR on a patient. And I think there were times that I feel like I hit people over the head with that information and with that discussion. And I feel like I now know that people need the space and the time and the readiness to talk about that. And if it's not the right time, it's not the right time. I totally agree with that. And I find that sometimes when you try to introduce it and it's not the right time, if you don't see those cues, then it actually ends up being like detrimental overall Mm -hmm. to the relationship and also to their trust in you, right? So I find like when you push someone up against the wall, immediate reaction is to try to push back and almost like they dig their heels in deeper and they don't want to talk about Mm -hmm. it more. I don't want to make it seem like we shouldn't talk about it, obviously, right? Because that's also a big problem where a lot of physicians, this is exactly what they're afraid of. So they don't want to bring it up at Mm -hmm. all. But obviously that's also a big disservice. So Oftentimes, I'll kind of approach it with the trainees as exploring the 
readiness, right? Like that always has right. to be the first step. It's not don't talk about mm-hmm. it, but mm-hmm. explore the readiness first. If we think about it the other way, how mm-hmm. our professional lives have impacted our personal lives, mm-hmm. anything come to mind for you as something that's meaningful? I don't know if you guys feel the same way about this, but as physicians who work in palliative care, we get asked all the time, oh, how do you do the work that Mm -hmm. you do? It must be so hard. And, you know, and I usually have two answers about that. One is, you know, my job is to go in there and oftentimes just make the person feel better, whether that's emotionally or physically. That's my one focus oftentimes. And so it's great if I can make them feel better, then I feel great about that. But yeah, sometimes we can't. We can't make them feel better because oftentimes it's something more existential, which maybe we can help them support them through that. But it's going to be difficult, right? Mm -hmm. There's going to be struggles. But how that helps me in my home life is it gives me such a better sense of gratitude Mm. around everything that I have when Mm -hmm. I go home and I see my daughter and I see my husband and I'm so happy and I know that things can change on a dime. So I kind of live each day to the fullest and I hug my daughter so hard when I get home and speaking of her she's really changed sort of my perspective also on my job in many ways as well because I used to talk about end of life wishes with my patients a lot and it wasn't hard for me to do that because I actually wasn't afraid of death and dying for myself. I'm like, I'm going to live my life to the fullest. You guys know I love to travel. I used to do a lot of hiking, sometimes in somewhat sketchy places. (laughs) And it was partially because, you know, if something happened to me, I was kind of okay with that. And once I became a mother, that kind of changed because... The highs are so high and the lows are so low because if something happened to her or happened to me so I couldn't take care of her, like even the thought of that is so anxiety provoking for me. Like my sense of mortality is just so heightened now. And I think that's helped me understand sometimes like the existential fears that our patients go through. Mm-hmm. So you asked me about how my professional life impacted my personal, but I've kind of also think now more about how, again, my personal life has impacted my professional life and being able to understand my patients when they have these fears about death and dying. I've had a similar experience. You know, at the best of times, I would call myself anxious. Like there's a <laughs> low level, an undercurrent of anxiety that's always there. But when I had my kids, that was taken up multiple notches yes does it get better (laughs) you know what it does get better oh good okay it does get better i feel like it was very immediate right after they were born because they're little and they're helpless but it actually did get better over time as i see them getting older and more Mm self-sufficient and i see them kind of growing into these little men i think they'll be okay and i look at their dad and i'm really thankful for their dad because i think he'd be a great caregiver even if i'm not here so that anxiety that peaked right after they were born has improved. I'm still a stress ball though. (laughs) I'm somewhere in the middle because if your child's neuroatypical, Mm. there's still these worries that you still do maybe a little more than you would if they were neurotypical, but it gets better for sure. I've always noticed it's a slower trajectory. And so I try not to panic about if I'm not here anymore. But I think my patients have taught me that I have no control over that. Mm -hmm. But what I do have control over is the day 
that is in front of me and that probably when I walk home, I am going to get home, hopefully, and that I should make the most of it. I think this job taught me the most. I say to my patients all the time, there are things we can control and things we can't. But boy, saying it and believing it yourself and trying to live that way is hard. It's very hard, but they help to teach us that. And I think trying to do it is very helpful as we try to allow our kids to grow up and be independent and realize we want them to be safe in a certain way, but there's only so much we can control. So I think that the duality of that is very present for us. We work in a life and death environment. So that heightens our sense of mortality. But then on the other hand, it also heightens our sense of gratitude. Yes. Yes. Living in the moment. Living in the moment. Thanks for listening to this episode of About Empathy. We hope the story that you heard today has inspired you to engage in compassionate, authentic, and empathic interactions. We'll be back next week with another conversation. Subscribe to About Empathy to get a new episode each week. When you subscribe and rate our podcast, it helps others to find us. Please share our podcast with your health professional colleagues and friends. Our website is aboutempathy.com. You can find the notes from today's episode and information about our show on the site. About Empathy is a Kickback Productions podcast hosted by Giovanna Siriani, Dori Sekaracha, and Irene Ying. Recorded and produced by Jackie Skinner with additional production and writing by Laura Takahashi. Music by Jerry Finn and Jackie Skinner. 